Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. People in a lot of Appalachian communities live without clean drinking water. Bad water lines and sewage treatment plants can turn what comes out of our faucets into a toxic threat. You couldn't eat the fish that you caught from the streams. You couldn't go swimming. In eastern Kentucky, public health officials issued a warning about the water. They point to hepatitis A, which is spread through feces and can be spread through water contaminated with feces, and rates of that disease in Letcher County were well above the national average at that point. How did we get here? And who's to blame for Appalachia's crumbling water infrastructure? The water systems in this country are often connected with problems of poverty and power. We'll hear how some folks are taking the situation into their own hands and trying to get good drinking water to their friends and neighbors. Those stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. It's easy to take water for granted. You just turn on the sink and it comes out the tap, right? It's not something we think about. That is, until we're forced to. Maybe you've read about lead and bacteria problems in the water in cities like Detroit, Flint, and Pittsburgh. But it's not just the Rust Belt. Lots of rural communities in Appalachia also have unsafe drinking water. The Biden administration released a plan in March to revamp America's infrastructure. And just last week, Senate Republicans also released a different, smaller infrastructure plan. Although there are a lot of differences in the two plans, one thing lawmakers from both parties include is billions of dollars that would go to fixing water systems. That money could help, but will it be enough to fix the underlying issues? And will it make a difference in the lives of the poorest, most vulnerable people? The problems affect communities everywhere, but today we'll hear from people in cold-dependent places. To help us understand how we got here, we'll start with a half-hour radio documentary. It's produced by APM Reports and is part of a podcast called In Deep. The show's host, Jed Kim, is the first voice you'll hear. Alan Tuggle lives at the top of a mountain valley in East Kentucky, right next to an abandoned coal mine. This was where the shop was. That's why all that concrete's there. The shop building used to sit here. He used to be a miner himself. Now he's the self-appointed keeper of local coal mining history. In old buildings he's kept up, he stores aging tools taillights from the carts that used to haul coal. When I'm gone, I don't know what's going to happen to it. It'll just be forgotten about, you know. But there's a lot of history here. In the early 1900s, coal basically built this place. The industry was booming. Mining companies constructed their own small towns, company towns, to house workers as close to the mines as possible. The companies built homes and general stores, schools and churches, they done it all. They took care of the town themselves. They provided essential infrastructure, too. They dug wells. Yeah, what it was was there were so many houses, like about three, every three houses or something used a pump, and it was between two of the houses, and everybody shared it. And they maintained the outhouses. And they had people that would go around and clean them out every so often, you know. But eventually, the bottom started falling out of the coal industry, and the coal companies left town. So... Who was left to ensure the people still living here had clean water and a safe way to get rid of sewage? Nobody. It just fizzled out. It just fizzled out, he says. It's 
It's a monumental task to get rid of mountains of human waste. But things are different away from urban centers, where homes are scattered miles apart, often too far to connect to a treatment plant. In lots of these rural places, community members have to figure out their water and wastewater infrastructure themselves. And even when they get creative, it's really, really hard to pull off. Today, the story of another former coal miner, someone who left the mines back in the 90s to fight for clean water in his community. It all played out in southeastern Kentucky, coal country. Think tree-covered, rolling Appalachian mountains, two-lane roads running through the valleys. And where there's road cuts, you can literally see the coal seams in the layers of rock, like big black blocks of coal. Our reporters Daniel Ackerman and Brita Green spent some time reporting there and are going to tell me about it. We got a great intro to the place from this guy named Carol Smith. How long have you lived in Letcher County? All my life. I'm 70. And like a lot of the uh, older men there, uh, he used to mine coal himself. Hmm. Yeah, he loves living there. Um, he talked about the independent attitude of the, of the people he knows of his neighbors. It's a great place. If I want to shoot my guns, I can shoot it off the porch. You know, if my grand, grandchildren wants to ride their dirt bikes, they can do it. So how big is Ledger County? Like, how many people live there? Just over 20,000. The reason we were focusing on Carol is because he knew that things weren't exactly environmentally clean in the area, but he didn't know all the details of it. So it really started back in the 90s. Um, He was working in the mines, but he was watching sort of the news, the local news, and just seeing all kinds of corruption going on with the government and decided that he was tired of it and wanted to sort of take things into his own hands. I felt like I wasn't doing all I could to ensure that my children would be able to live here and my grandchildren. So he decided to run for office, actually, which was, <laughs> I think, a surprise even to him. Huh. Right. And and he'll tell you himself he's not that big on big government, but he actually decided to run for judge executive in the county, which is basically the mayor of Letcher huh. County. And he won that race in 1993, and in early 1994, he left the coal mines and took office as the judge executive of the county. Wait, he actually won? Yeah, he he thought things were so bad, and he said that he announced his campaign three years before the election, so I guess he got the word out, (laughs) and he ended up winning. Did he run on, like, a clean-the-place-up kind of platform? He did. I mean, I think his big thing was corruption, but what happened was he gets into office, and... um, Well, a number of things happened. I mean, there was like a couple of storms and he didn't have any resources to do the cleanup. And then he started hearing from some of these little communities all around the county that things were sort of falling apart, Um, some having to do with those storms and some like not at all. So one of them was this little community called Haymond um, Mm -hmm. where they were having drinking water problems. They had a wooden tank on the hill. Uh, It was probably built in the early 1900s. And that system failed. So the situation there was that they had this wooden tank that supplied their drinking water, basically. It fed to all the homes in the community. It, it, it was a wooden tank. It, would it, like, collect rainwater or, or streams would feed into it? So they pumped it from a well. And, you know, you got to remember that 
Many of these communities were built and then later abandoned by the mining companies. And so once the mining companies left town, those old water tanks, like the one in Haymond, started to deteriorate. And for a while, um, people put together these patchwork solutions, basically repairing um, whenever and wherever they had to. But by the time Carroll took office, those patchwork solutions were wearing thin. And so, you know, he was actually hearing from some folks in Heyman that some days they would turn on their tap and no water came out at all. Other days, the water was, would have algae or, you know, all kinds of bad stuff that would come out of a wooden tank. Okay. Was it, I mean, was it a lot of work to maintain this water tank? I think when they were putting together these patchwork solutions, it was small things over time. But when they really started breaking down like what was happening in Haymond, then that became a much bigger problem because it, it needs a sort of a whole scale um, solution. And Carol, sort of seeing this happen, he had to pretty quickly put aside some of his other um, goals for taking office um, and really just decide to focus on the drinking water situation because it was such a big deal. There's a lot of types of challenges, but, you know, if you skin your knee, it's a challenge. But if you cut an artery, it's very important that you deal with that situation immediately. You know, if you're, if you're bleeding, you better do something pretty quick. It kind of, uh, that becomes a priority. What does he do? Well, um, eventually, uh, he and, you know, some of the other uh, folks who work on water in the county, they got that community uh, connected up to water. So, you know, um, the local water treatment plant in a nearby town ran water lines all the way up to Haymond. And, you know, you might think, great, problem solved. They have clean, treated drinking water. Um, But the other shoe dropped because it turns out that what goes in as water comes out as sewage. So once all these homes have um, clean, abundant drinking water, suddenly a lot more stuff is coming out the back end of their houses. We fixed their water, and all of a sudden, it literally compounded the sewer problem. Can I ask you, like, is that something you saw coming? No. But in hindsight, it's like... Yeah, duh. We came to understand that it wasn't just a water issue, and it wasn't just a sewer issue. It was a water and sewer issue. Like, why would more water coming in lead to more sewage coming out? Yeah, the trick is that basically what was happening as Carol explains it, is that people, you know, when you don't have water you trust, um, or maybe you're buying, you know, gallons of water at the store, you're really careful about using that water. Um, But when you're able to turn on your tap, like speaking as someone who doesn't think much about my drinking water that comes in or like (laughs) the water I use to wash dishes, like whatever, leave the tap on, you know? Yeah, just let it flow. Let it flow. flow. And so, (laughs) and all that water, you know, what goes out as sewage isn't just what comes out of the toilet. It's all the wastewater you produce in the house, which is everything that goes down any drain. And so what was happening was all of a sudden, all these people were sending um, a lot more volume down. And I say all these people, but this was a pretty small community. Okay. So, I mean, we've been talking about sewage throughout this entire podcast. Uh, Like you you treat it. (laughs) Like what's the, what's the problem? Well, the problem is here there was no way to treat it because 
the coal companies who built these company towns didn't build a sewer system. Um, oh. So, yeah, so some homes in the county were on their own septic system, but in a lot of communities that wasn't possible because the houses were too close together or maybe the soils weren't the right type to, to successfully have a septic system. So in a lot of cases, there were straight pipes, and that is exactly what it sounds, Jed. It's basically when a pipe drains your house and all the wastewater in it and runs right out into the nearby creek with no treatment. The stream started running with sewer instead of water. I mean, there wasn't water in the creek year-round, but there was sewer in the creek year-round. Oh, um, I've uh, not heard of this. Is it, uh, is it common? Uh, well, it was common in, in certain parts of the county at the time, again, just because it is so expensive to install a sewer system. And in cities, there are, you know, utilities that will take care of that. But that was just not the case um, in Letcher County once these coal companies kind of pulled out. It was kind of amazing because it reminds me of, like, London in the you know, hundreds of years ago that they were just dumping waste into the Thames and they seem to learn that lesson pretty early on. Right. I mean, I think what's important to remember here is that, you know, at one point in time, as you point out, actually, it was considered to be the safe and healthier thing to do to send your waste out into a local stream. I mean, it was better than having it pile up on the street, essentially, which was the other right. option at the time. And these communities were built, you know, sort of back in the day, and then they just, no one was looking at infrastructure there for decades. Um, and because they're small communities, because they're in a rural area, there just wasn't a ton of focus on it. So it wasn't just in Hayman, as, as Dan was pointing out, it was communities sort of all over the county. And it started, you know, Carol really started to pay attention to this at this point when he had taken office. It was a pretty big crisis because it's a, the waste is accumulating. I mean, at, at that point, you know, around his first term there, they were estimating 100,000 gallons of untreated waste were flowing into local streams every day. There was actually a no-contact advisory to all the waterways in the county, meaning you couldn't eat the fish that you caught from the streams. You couldn't go swimming. And those no-contact advisories, was that because of sewage? Sewage, yes. So, like, they point to hepatitis A, which is spread through feces and can be spread through water contaminated with feces, and rates of that disease in Letcher County were well above the national average at that point. Carol Smith knew that he, as judge executive of the county, kind of had to do something about it. So, again, not a big government guy, but in a kind of a surprising move, he decided to form a new government entity. Single-handedly? Well, with a number of other public health officials at the county and state level, and there was a push from the public, too. Basically, Carol realized there was such a complex problem in, in so many different communities in the county that were struggling that there needed to be some kind of county-wide government unit specifically to deal with this water and sewer issue. Okay. So what did they build? So what they built is the Letcher County Water and Sewer District. The plan was that everybody would be hooked up to water and sewer by the year 2020. Which at that point was twenty about 20 years away. Okay. <laughs> um, so 
the thing was, in some cases, that's a pretty easy goal in, in the county. But then you had some other areas where it was much harder because the treatment plant was really far away. Or maybe these people were living in what used to be a coal camp up by the mouth of a coal mine, which was convenient for getting to work in 1920, but was not convenient for running sewer lines, you know, in the year 1990. Right, um, yeah. So um, what we did when we were down there is look at one community in particular that was sort of one of these more challenging communities, um, which is, it, it was interesting what happened there because Carol and some of these other planners that he was working with and community activists too, they decided to sort of try something kind of out there, like not a typical way that you would address this problem. Right. And we want to take you to another coal camp in the county. Um, it's called Millstone. Um, it sits right on the North Fork of the Kentucky River. Um, just It's pretty small. Um, there's a couple dozen houses um, squeezed on a couple streets right next to the river. You know, it used to be a company town. So there was a company store when <laughs> the mine was active. That's now an empty lot. There's a church nearby. And then just a whole bunch of sort of densely packed, tiny little um, houses, sort of these coal camp houses that are nestled right up between the road and the riverbank. So we went down there to talk to folks who were living there. Um, and when we were there, it was just before Thanksgiving. And we um, met an older woman named Edna Macby. Um, and we, we went inside and sort of met with her and her and her daughters. Hi, I'm sorry to bother you. So and yeah, they just sort of told us about their experience growing up in this little town. So you met Edna. Tell me, how much did she know about these issues? Well, she's lived in Millstone her whole life. And I think to some degree, the reality of just every day having sort of unreliable water and a sewage situation where it's just going into the creek for most of her life becomes normal. She started by telling us how she got her water back in the day, which was similar to folks in Haymond and folks elsewhere in the county. They got their water from a big tank on the hill, and that tank was fed by a well, presumably put in originally by the coal companies. And Edna's daughter, Patricia Boggs, remembers that tank too. She says the water was not exactly sanitary. My brother-in-law one time said he looked in it. He said if you would have seen in it, you wouldn't have drunk it. But, you know, that's all we had growing up, and we drank it. You know what I'm saying? Who maintained it? Uh, it was different, different ones. Different people who different lived in the people. community. Ronald Maggard was the last one. Yeah. He's dead now, though. Yeah. So it was just sort of like a community effort. <laughs> yeah, whoever wanted to take on that job. That was So would you know, like, was that tank first put in by the coal company? That was their, uh, like... Probably. That built these mm-hmm. houses. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Yeah, Southeast owned it. People that we talked to in the county described growing up being able to sort of stand or sit on the edge of a local stream and you could look up and down the banks and you would see sort of like white PVC pipes in a lot of cases. And you could sit there and maybe over the course of half an hour, there would be, you know, some flows that would come out. I mean, most of the time nothing's coming out, but if you flush your toilet, then something comes out. Or if you, I don't know, uh, run the faucet, something comes out. You guys grew up here, and at that time, the sewers were running into the creek. Like, what? It, when you were playing, did you play in the creek? No, we weren't ever. My brother got typhoid out of the creek from mm-hmm. playing in it, where the sewers run in it. Millstone is uh, just a few miles upriver from the county seat, which is a town called Whitesburg. 
And Whitesburg gets its drinking water from that very same river. Oh, yeah, okay. That's right. pretty important. <laughs> and, of course, they treat it, so it's not like they're drinking raw waste um, or anything like that. Um, but the, the dirtier the stream is, the more money it costs for Whitesburg to clean the waters. The obvious first choice would be to connect Millstone to a wastewater treatment plant, right? Like right. they have those elsewhere in the county. Um, but the problem was largely due to geography. Um, so sewer lines that go to a treatment plant tend to run downhill. So gravity pulls all that waste into the treatment plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nearest treatment plant was actually uphill from Millstone. And it would have been a lot of money to install a system that would pump the sewage uphill. Okay. So that kind of eliminated the wastewater treatment plant option. Right. And then the other option that you see in a lot of rural areas are septic tanks, which are sort of like an on-site treatment situation Mm -hmm. that uses the soil of your yard or whatever it might be to help filter the waste. And the problem in Millstone was sort of twofold. One was that the soil conditions just weren't right to make that work very well. And then also because these houses are so squeezed together, they're so dense, there's just not really room. A lot of people say you need big yards in order to spread it. Right. Exactly. And which is not a problem in a lot of rural areas because you have um, houses spread apart, but this is sort of an exception to that. You know what, Carol Smith started asking, and a lot of the people he was working with, are there alternatives that are being developed where you could do this, something small, something localized, that would be affordable? Did they discover something? Well, the Letcher County Water and Sewer District, when they were looking around, they saw that there were a handful of other homes in the county that were treating their wastewater, not with a septic system, but with peat. So peat is like this kind of decomposed plant material, basically a moss. It's like this grassy stuff. Yeah. No, no, it it, it has more of the consistency of dirt because it's a little more decomposed. Um, and the thing about peat is that it is really space efficient compared to a septic system. And the county decided maybe they could scale up and build a larger peat system to serve the entire community of Millstone. And remember, it's just a couple dozen houses, so it's it's nothing too major. Okay, so uh, what does this look like? Like a big field of, uh, that's filled with peat that the houses then drain into? Yeah, um, pretty much. So they routed all of the drain pipes um, from that collection system into these big bins that were filled with the peat. And so those bins were buried in a field just outside of town. All right, so we're here, we're here like past the edge of the community of Millstone. We're, like, walking on a little, like, raised area by the side of the North Fork of the Kentucky River that has, I guess, running under our feet. All of the sewer lines from people's homes are running directly under our feet to these uh, peat systems that we see up ahead. This flat area may be um, the, not the size of a football field, but just the size of, like, a football field end zone. Um, so pretty small. And you see these kind of dark green plastic lids in the ground. And those are the tops of the buried peat containers. And all of the wastewater from Millstone is flowing through those containers of peat. I don't smell anything even like vaguely sewer or septic smelling, do you? No, it smells very fresh. I mean, like, yeah. I don't it smells like we're in a forest after rain. Yeah, it actually smells kind of nice. And how is it working? Not great. I requested records from Kentucky's Department for Environmental Protection, and it turns out 
They've sent 15 notices of violation to Letcher County, back to at least 2008. And the state is basically telling the county, hey, you need to clean up this millstone peat system because it's dumping E. coli into the stream. Um, And E. coli is, you know, a bacteria that's common in sewage, and the peat system should have been cleaning it up. So there's a problem. The technology is failing. So this could be because the system has reached the end of its life. It could be because it was never working to begin with. What Mark Lewis told us, and he's the head of the Water and Sewer District now, he said he doesn't know. But the sort of bottom line is it's not working. Right. You were saying that this, you think, is the worst designed wastewater project. Worst thought out piece of facility that we have. I I thought uh, I was expecting this to be a huge success story. But it's yeah. not? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think we had the same thought originally where we had heard about them trying to do something innovative in Millstone and it seemed like, wow, like, you know, they were ahead of their time and this is going to be such an interesting story. And then and <sighs> instead, I think what becomes interesting about it is that it's just an example instead of sort of um, how intractable these problems are, that we have these situations that are just so hard to solve all over the country. And here you have a really good example of people struggling um, to figure out a workable solution. I think when you drill down into sort of what was, what exactly was the problem in Millstone, like what went wrong, a big piece of it doesn't have to do with the engineering, it has to do with the money. And that's a common theme that we're finding all over the country. So basically what's happening is that on top of these engineering technical problems that they're having, like the majority of their customers are not paying their sewer bills. So they also just don't have the resources to figure out what's going wrong. And it that's kind of a problem as well when it's so rural and there aren't that many people that you you just don't have the kind of money to address these kinds of fixes that need to be done. When that's the case, I mean, what can be done to fix it? Where is the money going to come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Like to put some numbers on it, since the 1970s, federal funding for infrastructure has dropped by 80%. So you can imagine that at one point, There was support for doing this kind of work, and now it's largely gone. And I think that in this particular situation, they're really kind of stuck. Like our understanding from talking to Mark Lewis, that's again the person leading the water and sewer district, he was just like, you know, he's throwing his hands up at this point. The state is saying, you need to fix this. He's saying, I don't have the money. And in the meantime, they're continuing to send out bills to people that just aren't paying. And there's not really a good ending in sight. There is always the hope that you know, when things are too expensive that we can like turn to innovation and new technology to kind of be the answer. And it, that's what happened in like this area that, and and it didn't really solve it. It just kind of kicked the can down the road. If you zoom out from Millstone and from this community, there are a lot of people thinking about this sort of at a more broader scale. So one expert that we talked to, Utmanu Lal, and he's at Columbia University, has been working on some of these new innovations. They're basically small, 
mailbox size boxes that you can install in your house that will treat waste. I can have a box that is of the size optimal for a single house, or I can have a box which is the size of 15 or 20 houses. Kind of a similar idea to what they were trying to do in Millstone. Right, and just to give an example of how the technology's changed, um, he mentioned that like on these new mailbox size mini wastewater treatment plants, uh, you can put them into a small community and then you don't even need to have someone on site all the time to check how it's working. And now you have water quality sensors in real time and flow sensors and pressure sensors in real time that can monitor the quality and transmit that information to you remotely. From a lot of them, we can use machine learning to even diagnose preemptively which place is likely to have a problem in the near term and dispatch someone to do that. Hmm. It wouldn't be a 20 years later, oh my goodness, it's not working. And what's the what would be like the cost comparison between these as a solution and, you know, laying down pipes. Yeah, in, in many cases, a decentralized system like this could be way cheaper because you don't need all of that infrastructure or those pipes running across the entire county. I mean, it, in Millstone, one official estimated for us that to connect each of those homes to a sewer system would cost about $50,000 to run that sewer system to the nearest treatment plant. So you can see how Hmm. those costs add up and these decentralized systems can end up being pretty cost-effective. What are we seeing? Are we we seeing a lot more of them being utilized? Um, Not yet. Hmm. (laughs) So um, there are a couple little places, a couple pockets where they're starting to be adopted. There's a community called Don, Virginia, that has a system like this. One big obstacle that um, Lal talked about when installing these systems um, is that there's a lot of red tape. He said he um, tried to propose that some of these systems be used in Alabama um, in a community that was having similar problems to Millstone. Um, But the state basically tried to regulate them as if it was a huge water treatment plant that might serve (laughs) a big city. Uh Uh-huh. And at the same time, even these decentralized systems that we're talking about, those still cost money. And in a lot of rural places, the money's just not there. You know, the federal government has kind of pulled out of the water infrastructure business. Um, And so far this year, um, amid the coronavirus pandemic, they've put trillions of dollars towards things like unemployment benefits, um, small business loans, um, they've even subsidized airlines. Um, but when you look at water infrastructure, that has really not been supported. Thanks to Carol Smith for sharing his story with us. Thanks also to Alan Tuggle, Edna Macby, and her daughters, Patricia Boggs and Gina Tyree, and to Mark Lewis with the Water and Sewer District. We also got help in Letcher County from Herbie Smith, Kevin Nichols, Bill Andy Farley, Caitlin Myers, Tom Sexton, Mary Cromer, Sydney Bowles, Ada Smith, and the staff at Apple Shop in Whitesburg. And many thanks to Upmanu Lowell and Kartik Chandran at Columbia University. I'm Jed Kim. That was an episode of a podcast called In Deep, produced by APM Reports. The host is Jed Kim. The reporters on that episode we're Brita Green and Dan Ackerman. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll travel to McDowell County, West Virginia, 
where a local food pantry is bringing drinking water to residents who have lived without clean water for years. I never thought I would be in a water line. And I thank God every day for these wonderful people working here. That and more coming up. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. County, West Virginia. The pipes are so bad that many people don't have running water at home. But a local food bank is working with a California-based nonprofit and the local utility to bridge the water gap. They're trying new technologies, repairing the old ones, and setting up standalone systems because there's no one single fix for any of this. Laura Harbert Allen has the story. The Five Loves Two Fishes Food Bank sits on a narrow strip of land between Elkhorn Creek and U.S. Route 52 in McDowell County, West Virginia. Behind a black fence with a gate sits what looks like a bunch of small solar panels. But as I walk toward them, I hear a weird hum, kind of like a spaceship getting ready to take off. Turns out these aren't solar panels, they're hydropanels. Basically, what they do is they pull the moisture out of the air. That's Bob McKinney. And send it into those panels, and, uh, of course, it's filtrated. I've had it sampled, and it's pure drinking water. Bob's worn many hats in McDowell County over the years. Teacher, electrical contractor, and pastor, just to name a few. Now he manages the Appalachia Water Project for Dig Deep, a nonprofit organization that works with local communities around the country to solve water access problems. Here in McDowell County, a lot of the water infrastructure was put in by coal companies decades ago, and it's just wearing out. Some of the lines are uh, getting pretty old, and they're going to have to be replaced, and the, the pump houses and things like that are getting pretty old, and they're going to have to be repaired. So in the meantime, Dig Deep helped install the hydropanels because people kept coming to the food bank asking for the same thing. You know, I need food, but boy, I sure could use some clean water. Bob's wife, Linda, runs the food bank. She's greeting clients who stop by the pantry to pick up water. This is Miss Pearl. She's a feisty little thing. Bob's driving the forklift, putting pallets of water where they need to go. 88-year-old Jenny Jones is among those picking up water today. After all of these years, and my husband being in the military from 46 to 52, I never thought I would be in a water line. And I thank God every day for these wonderful people working here. 
But the hydro panels only produce about 200 gallons of water a month. Most people use 100 a day. So they help, but don't go far enough. Mavis Brewster, general manager of the McDowell County Public Service District, or PSD, says that people have to figure out their own solutions right now. On Bradshaw Mountain, for example, there is essentially no water system. They're having creek water hauled, and they're paying $30 for 1,000 gallons of water that they can't do anything with except maybe flush their commodes. In North Fork Hollow, there is a system, but it's old and needs to be completely replaced. That includes uh, a water plant, lines, meters, fire hydrants, so you'd be able to offer good, reliable water service to, to all of North Fork Hollow. And what is the price tag on something like that? Uh, about $6 million. And that's just one project the county needs. None of this comes as a surprise to George McGraw, Dig Deep's founder and CEO. In 2014, when CBS Sunday Morning aired a feature story highlighting the nonprofit's work... And all of a sudden, our office would be flooded with calls, not just from donors, but from other people who were like, well, I don't have running water. I live in Alabama, or I live in West Virginia, or I live in Texas. I thought we were the only one. Dig Deep started looking for any data on U.S. water access, but they ran into a pretty big problem. No one could tell us how many people there were in the U.S. without running water and where they lived and why they were experiencing that. We, we may be one of the only countries in the world that's not measuring that on an active basis. So they stepped into the gap. Dig Deep partnered with the U.S. Water Alliance and researchers at Michigan State University to figure out where access to potable water in the U.S. was a problem. Appalachia and the Navajo Nation were two of several places that stood out. Despite being separated by thousands of miles, these communities have a common problem. It's a lack of a basic human right like running water. That's Emma Robbins. She directs the Navajo Water Project for Dig Deep. While Appalachian water districts confront rocky, steep terrain, she battles something else. It's really important to remember just the vastness of the Navajo Nation, right? And there's just all these different communities that are very far from water lines or else they don't live near a safe water source. Robin says that Dig Deep works on a range of solutions across the reservation. During the pandemic, they've helped folks pay water bills, for example, And in another part of the reservation, they're installing home water systems. Bottom line, in McDowell County and in the Navajo Nation... It's not just about having a copy-and-paste solution. People will say, well, I worked in, you know, a developing country somewhere else, so this is going to work. And that's not always the case. Dig Deep has learned over time that communities often know what they need, and they just need to be asked. It has to be a partnership, and trust takes time to build. I get, you know, I get a little frustrated. Things don't happen when I want them to, but that's just the way it is. It just has to, we just have to be patient. The McKinney's and Dig Deep say they are in it for the long haul. The problem is not every community has NGOs like these willing to step in and take on these complex challenges that the public sector or coal industry used to. For now, Bob and Linda focus on getting water to people today. Thanks, Miss Linda. Thanks, For Inside Appalachia, I'm Laura Harbert Allen in McDowell County, West Virginia. We're going to hope we'll get down your way,
There are all of the technical and logistical sides of water issues here in Appalachia. But there's also the human element. 30 to 50% of the workforce in water and wastewater is expected to retire within the next 10 years. These aging operators are the ones with the knowledge and experience to maintain thousands of individual, sometimes finicky, systems across the country. The National Rural Water Association created a program to preserve this institutional knowledge. As Jessica Lilly found out, it also promotes a new kind of sustainable job and one that helps folks stay closer to home. Josh Adkins is from Pioneer, Tennessee in Scott County, about an hour north of Knoxville. We have a Walmart. That's pretty much the extent of our little town. Other than that, I, you know, it's just home. That's all I know. He's lived there his whole life and never wanted to leave. But a few years ago, he was driving an hour to work as a radiologic technician. I mean, I liked it at the time, but it didn't really work out with my family. Wasn't able to get a part-time or full-time status. You know, some weeks I'd only get to work four hours a week. He went back to school to get his bachelor's degree, hoping that he could make more money. With a young family, though, his main priority was staying close to home. So he dropped off his resume at the town of Huntsville, about a 15-minute drive from Pioneer. One day they called and said, if you're still interested in uh, working, we have a position open. Atkins began work as a collection system operator in August of 2020. Shortly after he started, he was paired with a mentor who has about 30 years' experience. Tennessee became the 29th state to adopt a version of the National Rural Water Association Apprenticeship Program in 2020. For Adkins, it meant he can make money while learning the trade. Adkins will spend about two years or 4,000 hours on the job as part of the program. Benefits to learning on the job is, you know, getting the hands-on training. That's more of how I learned. Adkins will also need up to 318 classroom hours to complete the program. This will help to prepare him to pass state certification tests. Without the job, he says there's no way he could have afforded the training. Kevin Bird is the Workforce Development Coordinator for Tennessee Association of Utility Districts, which provides technical support to utilities across the state of Tennessee. These apprenticeships will change how our operators look and how and the kind of knowledge that they will they will have. That institutional knowledge comes from the master or mentor operators who know their systems and any particular quirks of their region. From facility to facility, the water uh, chemistry changes. He would have an experienced knowledge that I'm going to change my water chemistry because I know there's something that occurs here naturally or, or uh, hopefully not unnaturally uh, at a certain time of the year. And I need to change uh, the way I address that. And he can impart that immediately without months or years of uh, uh, trial and error. The Department of Labor approved the NRWA's Water and Wastewater Apprenticeship Program in 2017. Shannon Walton is the NRWA's Apprenticeship Program Manager. If we let those folks just walk out the door without sharing what they have learned um, and experienced and become subject matter experts in for 30 or 40 years, then you know, shame on us for letting them go without passing that down. She says the program is also a tool to recruit a new generation of water and wastewater workers. It is an occupation that young people don't even really know about uh, for the most part. 
And the pay isn't all that bad. According to the Occupational Information Network, the median wage for water or wastewater operators is almost $23 an hour, or about $48,000 per year. Although Walton says that operators in urban areas usually make more. But certification is truly a chicken and egg situation. Along with a high school diploma or GED, workers must also have at least three months' experience at a small system and even more time on the job for higher grade operators. The NRWA apprentice program is intended to formalize the employment pathway and increase the level of professionalism in the industry. This was an opportunity to kind of have structured systematic training that is similar or the same across the nation. But enticing a new generation to pursue this career can be tough. You know, it's not, hey, I'm going to be the next Facebook creator. I'm going to work with my laptop sitting on a beach. Um, Kind of a job that, you know, youngsters seem to want more and more these days. Apprentice Josh Atkins says that reaching his generation could mean a better explanation of the work and its importance. I wish people had a better understanding of how wastewater really went. It's kind of the, you know, it's a hidden world. No one really understands it. He's also noticed some stigma surrounding his chosen profession. When I got into it and started telling people what I did and uh, what I was going to be doing, they're like, oh no, that's terrible. But it's really what you make of it. Firefighters and police officers are often celebrated as champions of rural communities. But Walton says that given how critical water and wastewater systems are to the basic functioning of our communities, the industry's workers deserve the same respect. We're kind of unsung heroes. We don't kind of stand on the rooftop shouting about what we do. Most of what we do is underground and it's really not seen by the general public. There are 31 states that have registered apprenticeship programs and approximately 260 apprentices registered nationwide. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly. Kentucky also adopted this program, and its first apprentice began earlier this year. This is the second year the program has been available in West Virginia, but there haven't been any participants yet. Water infrastructure is not a sexy topic, but it defines so much of our lives, whether we think about it or not. To reflect on the big takeaways, I spoke with someone who's been reporting on water for 11 years. Brett Walton writes for Circle of Blue, a nonprofit newsroom that reports on water issues across the U.S. and internationally. I asked him to share his perspective on what we've been hearing. So how does what you see in Appalachia square with what the rest of rural America faces? Right. I mean, like the the three stories show, there are problems with aging systems, with inadequate maintenance, with operators who are not trained or equipped to handle the systems, with contaminated water, with untreated sewage coming out. So the specifics are unique to each place, but in general, it tells a, a broad story about what's happening for a portion of America. So the EPA likes to say that 92 or 93 percent of drinking water systems meet all federal standards, which is true. But in a country as big as the U.S., even a few percentage points of population still equates to tens of millions of people. What are some of the solutions you're hearing about? What are some of the ways to to address some of these issues? What people tend to bring up in these situations is funding. And you hear that when you talk to anyone about drinking water and sewage stories is more funding is needed, which is true. 
the federal government used to play a much larger role in the funding of construction of sewage treatment plants in particular. The construction grants program that happened in the 70s following the Clean Water Act. Some say it was the second biggest federal public works investment in this country in its history after the interstate system. And so Congress did appropriate that money in the 70s and we upgraded the nation's wastewater systems. But now we're 50 years later, just about, and a lot of those systems need work. But solutions that revolve around funding uh, can go a long ways, but not all the ways to providing a remedy for the country's water problems. Because funds eventually uh, from the federal government close off. We don't have the construction grants program anymore. And eventually communities will need to maintain the systems and operate them. And that requires consistent amounts of of funding. So it's not just a one-time infusion, which can be quite helpful for getting a community off the ground. And we see that in Kentucky, where a lot of the state's severance taxes from coal mining went to infrastructure projects from roads to sewer systems. And when I was in Kentucky a couple of years ago in Letcher County, as it happens, and Harlan County, talking with county officials there, they were concerned about the decline in severance taxes as coal industry declines. So a lot of the systems were put in with coal money and by coal companies. Those companies, as they go bankrupt, leave a system that needs to be operated and maintained and is often falling apart. But then the severance taxes that were used by state and local governments to put in some of these treatment systems. Uh, When those severance taxes go away, there's concern now about how these systems that were initially funded will be funded into the future. And that's where this solution looking only at funding falls short. And so we also need to look at structural change in the water systems. It's something that Kentucky has been at the forefront of. And by by structural change, I mean, it's not just providing money and propping up systems that don't have viable financial futures. The water systems in this country are often connected with problems of poverty and power. And when you have lots of small communities that have declining populations, older populations, uh, it's especially problematic in Appalachia, but we've seen this also in North Carolina, uh, Louisiana, elsewhere. In rural areas, if you have an out-migration of people and you have fewer people left to upkeep a system that was designed for a larger population, that's going to be a long-term problem. So a lot of people are looking at reorganizing water systems to be bigger, to connect communities together so that they can share operators, um, share the maintenance cost, and make sure that you're not just putting money and funding into a system that's going to perpetually need more funding and money. When you take all those factors in, are you optimistic or are you skeptical when you look at the future of water infrastructure in Appalachia? I, you know, never make big predictions like that, but I think it's a it's a ripe moment for for water systems. One of the the people in the operator training story, Josh Adkins, mentioned water being a hidden world and that no one really understands it. But I think that is changing and changing quite a bit in the last few years where we've had front page water stories nationally from the Flint lead crisis that really pulled back the cover on the condition of some of our older systems to drought in California that revealed the precariousness of some of the water supplies, particularly in the West. Um, so it's, it's more frequent now that you see water stories getting major attention. And I think that uh, out of sight, out of mind mindset is going by the wayside a little bit. 
I mean, it's not to the level that it could be, but there is much more concern and awareness now about water systems. And that's a good thing. Uh, and one other thing to say about that is that the consequences of inadequate water infrastructure extend far beyond the tap and the toilet. Most water systems in the U.S. are government-run enterprises. So in this country, by and large, we have public water. And when those systems fail, it reflects poorly on the owners, which are government entities. And that has a ripple effect. Research from Texas A&M found that people who receive dirty water or even have low water pressure, just inadequate service, have less trust in their local government. And less trust impairs society as a whole. And that's something that Dig Deep mentioned in the story about them trying to provide water to places in Appalachia and Navajo Nation. And that restoring trust when your water system is broken, uh, restoring trust once you get the water going again is a long and difficult endeavor. And so that's happened in Flint where they've had a lot of money go in to fix their system, but still you have residents that do not trust the water. And so even after the physical infrastructure, the pipes and all that is repaired, uh, repairing the social infrastructure is perhaps even a longer process. And so that's the big challenge is it's not just about the hardware, it's about the, the relationships too. Brett Walton, thank you so much for, um, for spending time with us today and discussing these issues. We appreciate your, your work. Thanks, Mason. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps and Blue Dot Sessions. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our show editor this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Catherine Moore and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.